0: dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple welcome back to the lincoln project i'm your host reed galen today i'm joined by new york times best-selling author sebastian yoker in addition to his books he's an award-winning journalist academy award-nominated documentary filmmaker and has worked as a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and a special correspondent at ABC News. Earlier this year, he released his latest book, Freedom, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Sebastian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So I asked you this question before we started recording, but I'm gonna ask you again because there are probably a lot of folks who know you probably first and most for your book, The Perfect Storm, which is a great read subsequently made into a movie. I asked you, How often does it sort of make you scratch your head that the expression a perfect storm is now utilized in every aspect of like the English lexicon?
1: There must have been a sort of hole in the language, a need for that phrase. I got it from a meteorologist. I didn't come up with it. A meteorologist I was interviewing about this crazy storm I was writing about, he was tearing his hair out trying to explain to me why it was so bad. And he finally, in frustration, he was like, look, it was like a perfect storm. Like every variable that could make a storm bad was in this storm. And of course, being a writer, journalist, I was like, oh, that's a cool phrase. That's definitely going in the book. And then my editor convinced me to make it the title of the book. I was reluctant to because people had died in that storm. There were families that lost loved ones, and I didn't want to say it was perfect. I mean, that felt kind of insulting, but my editor convinced me that there was a way to work around that, that it was respectful. And so we went ahead with that.
0: And there's probably a lot of folks listening for whom maybe that's the only book of yours they've ever read but you've written subsequent ones that really, I think, dive much deeper into this idea of camaraderie, of comradeship, of brotherhood and sisterhood, a lot of it around combat. Obviously, in Afghanistan, Korangal was one of the documentaries that you co-directed, which is an incredible piece of work if you haven't seen it. But your latest book is Freedom. And when I saw that you had released this, I wanted to talk to you because That seems to be much like a perfect storm, whereas it is overused and probably misunderstood or too little understood. This idea of freedom has a lot more going on than the idea of, I can do whatever it is I want to do whenever I want to do it, and you can't tell me I can't. But to you, with all that you've seen and all the people you've interacted with, what does freedom mean to you? And then I want to ask a few other questions about the book and how you came to these sort of revelations.
1: Well, the beguiling thing about that word is that it has so many different meanings. And I wanted to write a short book, and I did. It's 130 pages. It gets to the heart of why humans are able to be free, like why they are able to maintain their autonomy in the face of a more powerful force, a more powerful foe, or a tyrannical government. We're the only species, the only mammalian species where a smaller individual or a smaller group can defeat in combat a larger one. That's true from mixed martial arts to boxing all the way on up to, you know, guerrilla warfare and insurgencies, witness the Taliban who defeated the most powerful military ever in history.
0: Actually, they did it 3 times if you count the Russians and the British. Right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> and the truth is, and I hate the Taliban, right? I mean, just to get that out there immediately, like I loathe their misunderstanding of human rights and human dignity, but let me just say that if a small, poorly armed group like that with no air force and no artillery, and some of them didn't even have boots, if a small group like that can defeat an empire, which is essentially what we are, militarily speaking, if groups like that couldn't defeat the empire, there would be no possibility of freedom. I mean, history would be essentially a series of fascist megastates that run their society and the world according to the advantage of the elites. And that's not at all what history looks like, what human society looks like. And it's because the smaller force not only can win, but often does win. That's what intrigued me. And I tried to um, break it down into how do human societies do that? And they basically, the first thing people try to do is outrun their oppressor. And if they can't outrun their oppressor, they have to turn and fight and outfight their oppressor. And if they can't do that, they have to outthink their oppressor. And that's where you get some of the amazing political movements in modern societies. The labor movement, in you know a hundred years ago or so in this country, which was a democracy, but it had a lot of flaws, the labor movement was extraordinary in how it took on the federal government and won. there's also this sort of ultimate definition of freedom, which is that it's internal it's inside all of us and I asked a guy he's not in the book actually, but I had an amazing interview with a guy who had just gotten out of prison he'd done twenty five years or so for committing murder and you know, he grew up in a horrendous circumstance and did something terribly, terribly wrong and paid for it. But he educated himself in prison and he got out. I interviewed him a week after he got out and I asked him, I said, is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? I mean, he looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, yeah, of course it is. Are you kidding? He said, you can't be a drug addict in prison. You can't be distracted by your iPhone in prison. All you got is time. And eventually, with all that time, eventually you're going to have a conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there. And when you have that conversation, then you're a free man. And he said, that's a conversation that a lot of people on the outside never get to.
0: So it's interesting because we're distracted by the things we believe provide us freedom. For example, to use the idea of, you know, four walls, whether or not they're stone and bars or your house, you could never leave your house if you didn't want to. You could get all the information you need. You could have anything that your heart desired delivered within a couple of days. That happened to us as a country a year and a half ago, and a lot of people didn't know what to do. In fact, it felt oppressive. And I'm taking a left turn here. I didn't expect. So that gentleman you spoke with was serving time, paying his debt to society for 25 years behind bars. We had eight, 10, 12 weeks in lockdown, and a lot of people thought, I've never been more oppressed in my life. So I guess that idea of freedom really does have to start from within. Maybe that's the same with happiness or sadness or fulfillment.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, first and foremost, there's the freedom of safety. If your life is in danger, you're not free. You know, I'm not talking about America at this moment. I'm talking about the course of human evolution, which is characterized by an awful lot of bad things, warfare, Invasions, massacres, genocide. If an outside group can come in and kill and enslave your people, you're not free. If you can't defend yourselves, you're not going to be free. And that's a classic conservative viewpoint about the largest threat to freedom comes from the outside. And there's a lot of genetic wiring that goes into that. There's a lot of data that our political beliefs are about 50% inherited, about 50% genetic, and about 50% learned. So that's a classic sort of conservative viewpoint. And a classic liberal viewpoint is that freedom can be lost within one's society, that if it's not a fair society, you're not free, whether anyone invades you or not. And as I say in the book, if the society is well enough organized and well enough armed to repel an invader, it's well enough armed to oppress its own people. So those are the two things that must be guarded against. And when you get, you know, a very affluent Western society like our own, we've taken care of the possibility that we'll be invaded. We won't be democracy has more or less, though clearly it's a flawed system, but it's more or less taken care of the idea that a sort of despotic government can impose a totalitarian state and strip all of our freedoms. So we're basically left with this idea that our freedom means we can do what we want when we want to do it. That's lovely. I mean, how nice the world would be if that was the human experience, but it just isn't. It never has been. And even in our wealthy affluent Lucky society, it still isn't the
0: case. So when the vaccine first became available, I was speaking with a friend of mine and they said, I don't think I'm going to get the vaccine. And I said, come on, why not? And they said, I just feel like it impinges on my freedom. And I said, you are a wealthy white person who lives in an exclusive enclave. There may be no freer person on the planet or in the history of humanity. Literally, no one can tell you what to do. No one can make you do something you don't want to do. That was what they immediately fell back on, was it just feels like an impingement on my freedom.
1: Well, people often use the word freedom as an attention-getting word that feels sort of noble and principled when they're really saying, I don't want to be told what to do. The problem is that there is no survival outside of human society. If you could survive completely on your own in the wilderness, which virtually no one can, if you could do that, you wouldn't owe anything to society because you wouldn't be in society. But we're social primates. We only survive because we're part of a group. And the deal is that you get your safety and your emotional comfort from being part of a group. And in return, you must abide by the group norms. And that guy who feels that he's free, I'm guessing that he generally drives down the right-hand side of the street. (laughs) Right. And stops at stop signs. And stops at stop signs and all that stuff. Because if he didn't, he'd kill somebody. Or himself. Or himself. Exactly. And the government has been authorized to impose rules to protect our collective safety. I mean, during World War II, there were curfews in New York where you had to turn off your light, you know, at 8 p.m. or whatever, because they're worried that the Germans were going to bomb New York. And the government has the authority to do that because you as an individual cannot scream fire in a crowded theater. You just don't have certain rights that might kill other people. So the idea that like, you owe nothing to society, it's immature, it's juvenile. I mean, as I say in my book, only children owe nothing, but all adults owe something. And the government has codified our contribution as paying taxes, basically. That's the only thing you're required to do. And you know, if you have a really good accountant, a really good lawyer, you don't even really have to do that. But I think one of the losses in modern America is that there actually aren't other contributions to society that you're pressured to make. And I think that if there were, say, national service, I don't mean the draft, I don't mean military service, I just mean national service, that individually we would be psychologically more healthy and politically, socially, we would be a healthier nation for that mandatory contribution. I I mean, psychologists will tell you that the more you sacrifice for something, the more you value it. I think one of the real losses in modern American society is that we don't have to make any sacrifice whatsoever to be part of this amazing thing, and therefore we don't value it very much.
0: No, I mean, we're writ large entitled, but I want to speak to the idea of the living outside the social norm because there's a story, there's a journey that weaves through your book, Freedom, for people basically out in the middle of nowhere from time to time. But the idea is following this railroad track and There are times when the group goes in, they find a town, you know, they go to a diner, they shave, they wash up, but then they get back on this railroad track and they basically hide from, you know, the Amtrak cops. You know, once in a while they wave to the engineer. Once in a while they come across just a strange individual who just happens to be wandering around there too. And the group was away from society, but not cut off, I guess. If you guys had needed to, you could have gone into a town, found a hospital, found a doctor, if something that bad had happened. So what were you and your counterparts on this last patrol, as you called it, trying to discover on this trip?
1: Yeah, so I had a couple of combat vets and another guy who'd been in a lot of combat as a journalist. You know, we set out from Washington, D.C., walking north along the railroad lines. We picked the railroad lines because they're basically swaths of no man's land. You can really do what you want. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and getting our water out of creeks cooking over campfires and dodging the police who don't want you out there because it's illegal. And we made our way, walking 10 or 15 miles a day, carrying pretty heavy loads, like 60, 70-pound packs. We made our way from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, and then we got bored with the East Coast and headed west for Pittsburgh and wound up, we finished up in western Pennsylvania. And as I say in the book, over the course of 400 miles, we called it high-speed vagrancy. And over the course of 400 miles or so, we were the only people in the world who knew where we were at night. And we would be hunkered down somewhere. We're the only people who knew where we were. And I say, you know, there's many definitions of freedom, but surely that's one of them. So the intent of the trip, you know, we'd all been in war and we were sort of trying to adjust to coming back to American society. And I wanted to encounter this country in the most raw possible way. And the Appalachian Trail is beautiful, but it's not society. So what we wanted to do was walk through society, but you can't really walk on surface roads because cars make it dangerous. The cops will see you. There's nowhere to sleep. You'll get busted for vagancy, etc. On the railroad lines, I mean, if you'd escaped in prison and needed to get into the next county or the next state unobserved, right, you would move on railroad lines. You know, you wouldn't take a Greyhound. You wouldn't move on surface roads. You get to the nearest freight line and move down that as fast as you could at night, right? Nobody will know you're there. And so that's what was so appealing to us. And, you know, once the cops were looking for us with a helicopter, and they still couldn't find us. And so we wanted to encounter America when we needed something. We'd walk into town and buy some more food or a pack of cigarettes or whatever it was we wanted, and we'd keep on walking and out the other side of town, right back onto the tracks and keep going. And, you know, the other thing that we wanted was to get that feel, again, that we'd all had in combat of needing other people for our survival, though our survival wasn't as jeopardy as it is in combat, but that basic dynamic of the group needs everyone to participate and every individual needs the group or they wouldn't be okay, like that dynamic, that back and forth sort of mutual connection and need makes people feel really, really good. Even if it's just that you went and got the water and filtered the water for dinner or built a fire to cook dinner on, even if that's all you did, it makes you feel part of a group and we're hardwired as humans to enjoy that feeling. You know, one time someone started shooting at us in Pennsylvania and someone grabbed a machete and circled around and tried to get behind the shooter and incapacitate him. And the other guys got behind cover. And, you know, it was like a moment of combat. The guy shot four or five rounds over our head and then he stopped. And that was the end of that. But the loyalty that we felt and the sort of outrage that someone might hurt our brothers, we were right back on a battlefield. And it's extraordinary feeling and a very good feeling, I should say, in some ways.
0: Well, I'm sure all that adrenaline and maybe some of those instincts probably come rushing back instantaneously.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the feeling of belonging to something and the the more jeopardy you're in, the more you feel that sense of belonging and the more you need it. And that typifies our human society. I mean, this sort of ease in which we live, many people live, is not typical of the human experience.
0: I want to go back to something you said that you bring up conceptually really towards the end of the book is this idea that we have far too few people who have actually had to sacrifice and far too many people who don't have any conception of the sacrifice those people made. I I might be a little bit off, but I think it's basically like 1% of the country serves in the military. I have to assume it's a percentage of that 1% that served multiple tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., etc., So spending as much time as you have with these veterans, both in combat and now that they've come home, because I know that you've had a a lot of experience and many, many discussions with generally, I think, more men than women who've come back. How do they see that? It's not enough to like celebrate them on a Sunday afternoon at an NFL game, right? Like, how do we as everyday Americans who aren't going to serve in the military, who aren't going to go to combat, have an understanding, appreciation of what they've done and What does that mean for us? What do we have to do?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, let me say that the nation depends on many different kinds of people. And most soldiers that serve are not in combat. Most of them are in support units, which are just as crucial, just not as dramatic. But all of it's necessary, right? And so that 1% is vital to this nation. You know, we can't actually have a military that's 5% of the population. We can't afford it. We don't need it. So that 1% is often cited critically, but we can't grow that number. And there's no need to grow that number. But then there is other large groups of people that are also necessary, like people that drill for oil to put in the cars we all drive around without thinking about it that much. Farmers, teachers. I mean, there are industries like farming that are incredibly dangerous. And so I would just say that the Americans are unconnected from their military, unless they're from a military family. But they're really, they're unconnected from just about everything that keeps them alive. And in any traditional small-scale tribal society, every person would be keenly aware of the contribution of all the other kinds of people who make survival possible, including the warriors, but not limited to the warriors. And so I think one of the things that this country has to do is sort of wake up to the fact that we need all kinds of people, and there actually isn't a moral hierarchy that has the soldiers at the top. No one's at the top of that moral hierarchy if they're necessary to the nation for our our survival.
0: That brings up something interesting, because as you were talking about whether or not it was hunter-gatherer tribes or the way that primates, chimpanzees live, you seemed almost a little bit wistful for the idea that there was a group of people, individuals, where everybody knew their job, everybody did their job, and there was that social equality across the band, for lack of a better way to put it. How do we find those things? If we have friends, we have communities, we have people our kids go to school with, the people we work with, what were you trying to tell us with the sort of descriptions of those people?
1: My point was just this, that the issue of fairness is core to people's sense of dignity and self-worth, that they're part of a fair system. And hunter-gatherer society, one of the hallmarks of it is that it was quite egalitarian. There were not social classes. There weren't families or individuals that accumulated wealth. There was not monetary wealth. In fact, for a mobile society, you couldn't really own more than you could carry or put on the back of a horse. So it kept things quite equal. And I think one of the real stressors in American society, I mean, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we have an enormously high income differential, and that's a stressor on people. And you could make the case that when the income gap gets to be too large, it's hard to argue that it's a fair society, even if it's a democratic society, even if it's a capitalist society. It might not be that fair. And at some point, the Gini coefficient, as it's called, which measures income inequality, the Gini coefficient goes from 0.25, which is around what hunter-gatherers are, zero being perfect equality. So hunter-gatherer society is around 0.25. You know, a really unequal society like feudal Europe, medieval Europe, was around 0.8. American society is actually just about in between those two. It's almost 0.5. That's the level of income disparity in ancient Rome, for example. That's what a modern America is today. So, you know, I would say that on the macro scale, one of the things this nation really has to address for many reasons, it's driving political divisions, it's driving injustice, it's driving extremism. One of the things this country has to address is income disparity. But for the purposes of the individual, how do you feel... Like you're part of something greater than just yourself. How do you do that? You know, one way is to make sure you participate in your community. And if you live in a place that doesn't really have a community, I grew up in a wealthy suburb. There was no community to speak of because people were wealthy enough. They didn't need each other. So no one had to collaborate with anybody on anything important. I'm never going to make that mistake again. And I live in a mixed income neighborhood in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's wonderful for my soul, right? It's wonderful. But the other thing is, how do you participate in this great nation? The nation doesn't need you. We're a modern, mechanized, highly technological nation, very wealthy nation. They don't need you, right, or me. They don't need any one individual. So how do you feel like you're part of this great thing? And I would say that there's three important ways that are minor and symbolic, but actually have quite a lot of value. It's three things that anyone can do. You don't have to be like a fighting age soldier to join the Marines. You can be 80 years old. It doesn't matter. You must give blood. Giving blood is what allows people in an ER to save lives. My life was saved last year. I bled out. I had an internal um, internal hemorrhage in my abdomen. I bled out. I lost basically all my blood. And my life was saved, and my little girls will have a father because 10 people donated 10 units of blood, and they saved my life. Donate blood. Serve on jury duty. Jury duty is what prevents individuals from deciding who goes to jail and who doesn't. Only a jury of one's peers can do that. And if you don't serve on a jury duty, you are not participating in a fair society. And finally, vote. If you don't vote, you're saying, I don't want to live in a fair system. I'd rather live under tyranny. So you do those three things, you will feel like you're part of this nation. You don't have to join the Marines to have that feeling.
0: Let me ask you this, because a lot of the unrest from what we would now call the political right, Seems to be this idea that they feel like elite culture on the coasts is insulting them, their way of life, their culture, their tradition. And it seems like they have found that group that they belong to. Now, in my mind, it seems to be driven by resentment, but is there a way to unwind the resentment and the polarity that we're seeing now?
1: People are welcome to have the feelings they have. The question is, what do you do with those feelings? I mean, the hallmark of an unfree society is that violence is relied upon to make change. As soon as you start thinking about violence as a mechanism for creating change, you're forging an unfree society. And a democracy, the reason it works, and it's such a stable form of government, and democracies tend to be very wealthy. They tend to be militarily very powerful. They tend to be very stable. There's a peaceful change of government every four years or six years or whatever country you're in totalitarian states and dictatorships are generally very short-lived. They're not very stable forms of government. So when you use oppression and violence to create the outcome that you want, you're basically giving your country and your regime, your administration, a shelf life that's quite short. So the great thing about a democracy is that there's recourse. Conservatives and liberals are going to argue about just about everything. Great. That makes for a good discussion. And if national policy winds up somewhere in the middle, I mean, I happen to be a Democrat, but God forbid the Democrats run the whole damn thing. (laughs) <laughs> right, you know, and there's Republicans who I respect normally, but God forbid the Republicans run the whole damn thing. When you get a national policy that winds up in the middle, then you have a fairly stable system and a fairly wise system. It's not a coincidence that the distribution of a genetic conservatism and genetic liberalism is about 50-50. That's not a coincidence. So, in a democracy, you have recourse. You can go to the courts or the ballot box. Those are the only two avenues for change in a democracy. And when you think about the third option of using violence, you're basically saying I'm anti-democracy and therefore I'm anti-freedom. And my father grew up in Spain and fled at age 13 with his parents when Franco and the fascists came in in 1936. And I looked at that, at what happened. And, you know, it's basically what happened in this country last year. A progressive coalition won a clear majority of votes in 1936 and the fascists declared that the election was stolen and that only violence only physical force would regain Spain to its rightful course and that a coalition of communists and Jews had taken over Spain and that the church and the military and corporate leaders would have to take action and return Spain to its former glory and that's what franco did and you can see all of the same processes at work before January 6th in this country, except that because we live in a democracy, the military did not jump in on the side of the fascists. They stayed neutral. I mean, I grew up during Vietnam and, you know, among my people, the left in Boston, Massachusetts, the military was seen as a quasi-authoritarian entity, which it's not, but they are the most democratic institution in the country, meaning that they have a clear understanding of what a democracy is and they value it more than I think any other group in this country does.
0: Just to stick with Franco for a second. So for, I don't know, it was a couple of decades after, um, maybe even three decades after he took power, Spain was basically a closed society and the economy suffered and the Spanish people suffered because he wanted the country to be self-sufficient. It was only after he realized that wasn't working or somebody told him it wasn't working. They started opening up economically that things started to improve a little bit. Then obviously he died. And so it goes to your point, right? Which is, if you think that like a strongman authoritarian person is going to make your individual life better, the truth is, is that it's not just going to be a political calamity; it's going to be an economic one too.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There was a wonderful journalist who died tragically early, but he sort of documented the rise of fascism in pre World War II Europe. And there's a great quote from his book. His name is John Whittaker. He says, "The fundamental weakness of fascism." is its need to appear strong. And that's what all of those fascist dictators like Mussolini and Franco, they all have to appear strong. It's actually the thing that undermines the stability of their state. And in that book by John Whitaker, there's a wonderful quote. He quotes the president of Czechoslovakia in the years before World War II. Former president of Czechoslovakia said, dictators look good until their last five minutes. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. They're very, very powerful and then all of a sudden, boom, they're hanging from the end of a rope or being machine gunned against a wall, as happened in Romania. And so this idea of democracy, it's flawed, but it's the ultimate sort of strong, legal, political and economic fabric of a nation. And it's enormously enduring. And those buffoons on January 6th who thought that they were somehow advocating for their own freedom, the irony is that they're actually advocating for a political system that is the definition of being unfree of oppression.
0: There's another idea that you bring up here is that the leaders of movements must live as the members of those movements live. That if you are the leader of a movement and you put yourself above, whether or not that's socially, financially, whatever the case might be, that delta will break the movement. And I guess I posit to you in the context of our political system today, does that worry you? Does it worry you that we have leaders who no longer believe that they are politically, socially, economically on par and or responsible to the people who they are supposed to serve?
1: You know, humans are unique in that a smaller person or a smaller group can defeat a larger one, and that's only true for humans. So, just to establish that. So, I looked at cases where a smaller group actually defeated a greater power. Because that's the definition of freedom. I mean, if a small group cannot win a fight, No one's going to be free. The world would be a collection of fascist megastates. But the truth is that small groups can win. I looked at Montenegro when the Ottoman Empire invaded in the early 1600s. And, you know, the Ottomans outnumbered the Montenegrins 12 to 1 and got their hat handed to them over and over again. And the Montenegrins remained free. The Taliban defeated the United States. So what are the commonalities that these successful underdog groups have? And I wanted to find out what those were, right? So, one of them, there are many, but one of the commonalities is that they had leadership that was self sacrificing. Basically, they had leadership that was willing to die for the cause, either literally or figuratively. So, you know, I looked at the Easter Rising in Ireland, and there was an insurgent commander named Conley who commanded the uprising forces in Dublin. And he drove his age crazy by just taking unbelievable risks. He wouldn't order anyone to do something that he wouldn't do. So he was constantly out in the middle of the gunfire trying to figure out where to put the sandbags and this and that. And he got shot twice. And then after it was over, he was executed by the Brits. So that is leadership. And a quote leader who does not take risks, who blames others for their mistakes, who uses their position to increase their own personal power, that's not leadership. It's Opportunism. And those people really should be thrown off a cliff, literally or figuratively. That's up to you (laughs) to decide before I get myself in trouble here. So, back to your question about does it worry me in this country about the quality of the leadership? Yes, it does worry me. I mean, fortunately, we don't live in a situation where our leaders have to have physical courage, where the gunfire rings out and they stand tall and brave the bullets. Like, we're not at that stage of our country's evolution. But there's a moral equivalent of that, right? I mean, in in the corporate world, there's the corporate leader that refuses the year-end bonus on years when there was a downturn in the market and that they're looking at layoffs. And likewise for politicians. I mean, if you're not willing to die for your beliefs, which is maybe not a realistic expectation right now, at least be willing to sacrifice your career for your beliefs. So when you have someone like Mitt Romney, who I did not vote for. I'm a Democrat, right? I didn't vote for Mitt Romney. I had a few problems with his policies, but he really stood up to the Trumpers. And he stood up in the terrain of what are core American democratic values. And if you're violating them, I don't care what party you're in, I'm going to stand up to you. And likewise, Liz Cheney. Maybe it was a brilliant long-range chess move. I don't know. But in the near term, she basically committed political suicide to stand up for the incredibly noble ideals of this nation. And I can't imagine a scenario where if I lived in Wyoming, I'd vote for her. But my God, am I impressed by her. I feel like that we should all emulate her, even though I probably don't like her politics that much.
0: I want to ask two questions off of Liz Cheney. One is that we have heard, and this is not surprising, that there might be a couple, three dozen House Republicans who will not say anything publicly about the direction of their party. But they are saying to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, go, 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 go. You're doing great. We love you. Like, what do you say to those guys? And I assume they're mostly guys.
1: I'd say they're unbelievable cowards. Like, would you rather be in office in a country that's less democratic because you didn't have the courage to say something you know to be true? Or would you rather lose an election and know that you spoke the truth and you'll have to find some other way to serve your country? Like, which person are you? they're cowards.
0: Right. And the other part I wanted to ask you about that is we see the path forward in this country as a grand coalition and that as part of that grand coalition, we'll need everybody from a Liz Cheney to an AOC, that there is something bigger, right, that we're all a part of, that this grand experiment, as it was called, or as it is called, matters to all of us and maybe to humanity. But how do we convince coalition members to embrace the ethos that you describe, which is in a coalition, maybe like in your last patrol, everybody had the job they needed to do and they trusted that everyone would do that job. There are things we're really, really good at that maybe other people aren't and there are things that other people are really, really good at that we would not assume to try and take on, but we're hoping they do. How do we imbue that spirit with a sort of newfound pro-democracy coalition.
1: It's tricky because we live in a free society, so you can't compel speech. You can't compel action. You can compel people to pay their taxes, but not even that. I mean, if they want to go to prison instead, well, then off they go. How do you compel people to do the right thing, even if it's not in their personal interest? Soldiers do that all the time. Even if they don't believe in the nobility of the cause, they believe in the sacred imperative of survival. And they're never going to let their buddy down. Exactly. And so in this country, first of all, my friend Sarah Shays has written unbelievably good work about how corruption works around the world. And having lived in Afghanistan for 10 years as a private citizen and been all over the Middle East, she finally turned her lens on corruption in America. And she said, you know, the political system is unbelievably corrupt in this country. And you have many politicians who have tens or hundreds of millions of dollars it's clear that there's a feedback loop of influence and self-dealing and corporate rewards for people that we elect to office and that they're not representing the people, they're representing corporations. And I don't think anyone on either side of the aisle would dispute that fact. So the first thing you have to do is stop the corrupting influence of money. And I don't know how you do that, but this will never be a completely free society until we get money out of politics, corporate money out of politics. And the other big influencer on this is just the toxic role of contemptuous speech in politics. Al-Qaeda is never going to topple this democracy, right? They can hurt us. They can kill us. They're not going to destroy the country. We're the most powerful country in the world. The only group that can destroy America is America. And the way that's going to happen isn't with bullets, it's with words. And when people start saying, you know, I don't identify as an American, I identify as a Democrat or as a Republican or whatever the subgroup is, the implication there is that Other people aren't worthy of the citizenship that you enjoy. And when you have very powerful media figures and politicians that speak with contempt about their colleagues across the aisle, you are basically writing the death certificate of a democracy. And I feel like that's actually a matter of national security. And it's covered under free speech. But there's no reason at all that when a politician says something really stupid like that, that that person's political party can't step up and say, He or she has the right to talk like that, but the institution of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party officially and publicly condemns that way of speaking. And if we started doing that, it actually, I think, would start to have an effect on the body politic of this country.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, and this is something you noted when you were talking about the chimpanzee communities, but something that always reminds me of the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, There's a Former Marine from St. Louis. And he said, my entire time in Vietnam, I only killed one Vietnamese, but I killed hundreds. And then he just rattles off a whole bunch of Asian epithets. And he said, you see, that's how easy it is. You go from a subject to an object, and it's really easy.
1: And that's a psychological mechanism that protects people from the horror of killing. And it's totally understandable that soldiers do that. It's not pretty. It's not nice, but it happens in every single war that's ever occurred in human history And psychologically, it's an understandable process. When you start doing that with your own countrymen and countrywomen, you are basically saying the enemy is within the walls and we are getting ready for a civil war because the enemy wants to destroy this country and the enemy are the Republicans or the enemy are the Democrats. And when you have politicians or media leaders, some of them very, very wealthy people, who start leveraging their power by using that kind of rhetoric. It's a deeply traitorous thing to do. And again, it's free speech in this country. You can't actually throw someone off a cliff for it. But there's no reason the political parties can't condemn that kind of nonsense.
0: Well, and as my father used to say to me, and I'm sure many fathers said to many teenage sons throughout the eons, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Well, Sebastian, thank you for joining me today. This has been a fascinating discussion. Everybody out there, the book is Freedom. You can find it at your local bookseller. You can find it on Amazon or wherever. Sebastian, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online on social media?
1: You know, I don't do a lot of social media right now. My book is out. I mean, I have a flip phone, right? But I, <laughs> I do have you. a Twitter account, a Facebook <laughs> account, and my publisher sort of handles those and basically puts out material from my books or articles that I've written. I wrote an analysis of Afghanistan where I spent a lot of time. That came out in Vanity Fair last week. It's easy to find online. But basically, SebastianYounger.com is my website, and you can get messages to me on Facebook. I think I'm the only Sebastian Younger in existence, so I'm pretty easy to find.
0: Well, as always, everyone, you can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining me. The book is Freedom. Guys, it is absolutely worth the read, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.